Hi, this is Andrew Wyatt, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. Hey, it's Jenny LSQ. Thanks for pressing play on the LSQ Podcast, episode 94, with Andrew Wyatt whose voice and tunes you may be familiar with from any number of different contexts. He kicks ass in various realms. For instance, he is the frontman and lead songwriter of the alt-pop band Mike Snow. He's also a collaborator as a writer and producer with amazing artists like Dua Lipa and Miley Cyrus and Caroline Polachek and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, among many others. And he's a Grammy and Academy Award-winning writer of movie music notably for A Star Is Born, and the chart-topping soundtrack for Barbie, for which he co-wrote key tracks such as I'm Just Ken. And he's also on the cusp of putting out his first solo album in a decade. It's called Someday It Won't Feel Like Dying, and it'll be out this fall. But a couple of tunes from it are already online now. And Wyatt is a pal of mine as well, so it was a pleasure to get to do the LSQ podcast with him. And a bit of explanation for the reference to Nick's basement in the opening. Big thanks to Yeah Yeah Yeah's Nick Zinner for letting me record my side of this interview in his awesome L.A. studio back in August while he was on tour. Andrew and Nick are friends and collaborators as well as neighbors, so, you know, it's kind of a family affair. Let's get into it. Hey. Hey, how are you? Long time no see. I know, right? You recognize this room, though, undoubtedly. Wow. Nick's basement. But you're still in New York, huh? Yeah, I'm actually staying in Filene's basement. <laughs> the best basement the best of all basement the best Yeah, basement. so cool. There's a lot of discarded Barbies down here. <laughs> How are you, though? How's how's your week going? How's uh, Before we get into the interview nitty gritty, how's, uh, how's life? How are you? Life is good, you know. I'm. Um, I've had moments before, like when I was touring with, like, say, Mike Snow, and like I was just like, why do I? I, I would get to these places where I'd be like, is there something really wrong with me? And I've had, so I've had that a few times in my life where just like I realized that it, it's really was just something bordering on like ex- an exhaustion kind of thing, and. Um, I just getting over that now um, because, you know, working on the Barbie thing was so all encompassing and like was working many, many hours a day and no days off for about two to three months and no days off me. I mean, no days off. Like, so, so every day we were working minimum 10 hours a day and um and for almost three months, you know, so it was, and it only got more intense because as we, as, we first started the project we were like okay there's this movie it's it's it could just totally fly under the radar as time went on and just it just seemed like all of society mobilized towards this barbie thing you know it was like going to war or something so we all of a sudden felt really really in the vortex of this maelstrom you know that we knew there was going to be intense scrutiny over the work so we 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 responded in kind, I suppose. But anyway, how I'm doing in my life is actually I am. I really feel like oh, just so much physically better because I was really pushing the envelope of like truly being exhausted for a minute there. Yeah, it's amazing how much at a certain point, you know, if you live long enough, I think you start to realize like, 
oh yeah, I feel like shit because I feel like shit or something. Or like, I'm just like, oh, you're, my body hurts in weird, mysterious ways. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Maybe it's cause I'm stressed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's stress. And you, you think like when you're a kid, you think, oh, stress, what the, what are you talking about? Stress is not a real thing, you know? And then you realize it's actually the number one health impactor there is. I have to tell you though, that I, I um, because now we are, now we are in the interview, Andrew Wyatt. Now we're in the interview. I guess we're in the interview now. We transitioned so smoothly was effortless it's like this whole this whole interview is going to be effortless i can tell <laughs> um yeah as we connect in this early august moment uh, of 2023 uh as you've been starting to tell us about like just the recent barbie finishing insanity and but the the bigger thing is that this solo album of yours is getting ready to come out mm -hmm. is there an official title yet that we can say yeah, I mean the album's called Someday It Won't Feel Like Dying, which is like which is which is about the other kind of like uh thing which I've kind of had to deal with in the last couple of years, which was I went through this breakup with somebody that I thought I was gonna probably be with for the rest of my life. And uh it totally, you know, I mean that was like one of these things where it's like you really don't know how you you're going to get over something and you just somehow figure you've got to. So whatever you got to do to do that is, is what you got to do. Yeah, and so the, so the songs are part of that. I'm assuming what it, like somewhere along there, you figured out the only thing I can do in this moment is I'd better write some songs. Well, yeah, it was also like happened to be in the middle of the pandemic. So I was alone in my house and I didn't have anything really Obviously, none of us had anything else to do, but I did have the advantage of having a studio. So that was convenient. I was like in basically a really crazy place for a while, as we all were. I just happened to have a studio. So I had time on my hands and I had a lot of pain on my hands. So I, I channeled that in the only way I figured I knew how to do, which is I had a studio and I just started making these songs. And, um, you know, the last time I did a solo record was like 2013. So um, I just felt like I did want to have one of those scenarios where I was able to, you know, make all the decisions about how everything sounded on my own. And that's a very, I think, important. That's been a, that, that having that as part of what I am doing in this life has been very important to me. So. I just felt the freedom of being able to make the record sound like anything I want to, because, you know, I'm in a, in a lot of situations where I'm collaborating with people and it's great. And I think collaboration is like a wonderful thing that we all need to do. And like, you know, I was watching that Brian Eno interview last night where he's talking about the importance, his, his, the, the word that he chose to use it to describe someone who is the person who who's the godhead of a particular moment in culture that people call a genius and he's like i think the more appropriate word is senius because every person who gets that kind of title and that kind of um recognition is coming from a drawing inspiration from a pool of other creators in a scene that are talking about 
processes and integrating technology in different ways. And, and so that's always at the core of what I do is to be in some kind of a dialogue with others. But in this particular moment in history, it did feel very appropriate to, I mean, it was not just appropriate, it was kind of mandated that you had to spend a lot of time alone um, especially if you were not in a relationship, which I had all of a sudden found myself not to be. And I channeled that in the way that I knew how to, which was like, do everything myself, you know? And that's how I started out doing music too, which was just with a four track recorder, just doing every, writing everything and playing everything myself. And so there's something that feels very, very intimate and very pure to me about doing music that way, because it's exactly how I started doing music. I grew up in a time where, you know, I was playing the studio, as it were. That was my instrument. And the people that I kind of like, the first people that I was into were like Stevie Wonder and Todd Rundgren, and that's what they did. So that's kind of how I just sort of interpreted what a person would do with modern music. Even as like a little kid or like, yeah, what was that? Yeah, I... I started doing a version of multi-track stuff when I was probably 13 or 14, which was that I had like a sequencer on my keyboard and I would like play the bass line for like Janet Jackson's When I Think of You. And then I would like play all the top parts on top of that. So I was like kind of doing my own little version of like multi-track recording when I was like maybe 14 years old, you know? So I've been doing that a long time and then messing around with synthesizers since I was like, 12 years old you know so i had like my parents got me like a casio or something or a little yamaha thing for christmas when i was like 12 you know that was that's just been a part of my life the whole time even before that so like you knew by that point you knew how to play some instruments and you you could put some shit together when did when had that started when did you first learn an instrument and, and how did you go about it um i was like eight years old i started playing piano on my own just kind of plucking away stuff on the piano. And then my parents got me piano lessons because we had a, we had a piano in the house and my parents got me piano lessons and I actually hated it because I, I just did not respond to that classical methodology of like doing homework and doing all this stuff you didn't want to do. Cause to me, I enjoyed the, kind of emotionally playful part of music and I wasn't so focused on the discipline part. And then I kind of like later in life got wind of the fact that it was probably good to have a disciplinary side to what you do and like kind of make yourself toe the line and learn how to do certain things, you know? Um, but that came later at first. I just, all I wanted to do was like make stuff and I wrote, started writing music at the piano when I was eight because I found that if I brought a little composition in to my piano teacher, she would be less mad at me for the stuff that I didn't do, which she was like assigned work that I didn't do. I think she she's kind of was like... Yeah, she's like the John Thompson book or whatever those, you know, those... Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. My God. Yeah, like the, there was like that one song called like the Limpid Stream or something like Limpid. Who uses that word? This is like 19th century stuff that people are still using, you know? And so it's like, I just felt like, felt very alienating. And then I, I, I kind of get into it when I was, when I was like 16, 17, I started 
being a little bit more disciplined and taking that stuff seriously. But yeah, it's funny. So that's those first songs that you wrote, the first kind of the first original music to emerge from you. What was that like? I mean, does it sound like anything like what you write now? It's hilarious, though. But there, well, kids, there was two, there's two early things that I remember. The first one was just like a little instrumental thing that just felt good to play. I remember it was like simple, very, I mean, obviously I was eight years old and I was a novice. So it was like a very simple melodic and with a slight accompaniment in the left hand. And then I, which I cannot remember, but then, then, then like that same year, maybe one year after I wrote a song, this is hilarious. It shows you kind of how like, the melodrama of like being a child was like, how can I write the song that is the most moving and the most emotionally um, like eventful song that I could write. So I decided to write a song about my mother being killed by burglars. <laughs> wow. Very home alone. Yeah. Very. Oh my God. Very. Yeah. It was like, it was like NC 17 home alone. No, but it there was it was actually a song about being Christmas shopping with my mom. And it was it was like and then it was kind of graphic too. It was like it was like a horror tale, a tale of horror. And I was like, how can I write something that's like really going to be emotional and sad, you know? Wow. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like you I'm curious whether you wanted to evoke emotion by other people from other people with the song, or if you wanted to make it emotional, because that was how you could feel the emotion yourself was like, I need to make this song emotional. What's the most emotional thing? What will make this song the most cathartic for me? Yeah. I mean, and I think I was so young that I don't think you really, at that point, you don't have necessarily boundaries set between yourself and your own emotions and the way the world you know in your world so there was this confluence of like oh if i feel that then other it's it was just sort of a shared feeling you know and i guess maybe that gets to why sometimes pop music is is you do hit a lot of those things like where you are just writing something that goes that enters the human being almost in a generic way like it's not it's generic but it's also it could be very deep too so it's like it's a master key it works on everyone yeah you understand what i'm saying it's like um it's like here comes the sun you know it's like every single thing about that is relatable to everyone on this planet and if you look it's like by by leaps and bounds the biggest modern Beatles song like on Spotify it's like and and it's it's interesting that there are those kind of like super subliminal things and I think probably Jung would have a field day with it too right because it's like archetypal like Carl Jung would would talk about how the archetypes that are shared between every every anthropological group you know, has certain shared archetypes. But it sounds like you're saying, I mean, you can't, it's hard to remember now you're an adult, eight-year-old so emotional songwriting you, but it sounds like you connected with it really instantly with this ability to evoke something from yourself or to feel a sense of success with writing a song or that you had, you were, you had a goal and then you could strive for it. Like, was it, 
did it become an obsession immediately after after that? I'm trying to think like, I, I feel like maybe right after that, I left music for a couple of years because the whole classical music thing felt like such a flop to me. So I think because I felt a certain amount of shame that I wasn't able to sort of toe the line on the discipline side that, that they expect of you when you're studying classical music, I was like, oh, I guess music's not for me or something. And then that, so that was like, I gave that up around age 10 and then age for my 12th birthday, I enjoyed music still, you know, like I loved music and I listened to music always. And I was still really, I think my favorite bands at that point, and they're all coming down to me from my sister who was like seven years older than me, my half sister. So I was like super into the clash, super into um, Jimmy Cliff. And I mean, the I, the harder they come was my favorite. I was really into the doors and I still, and I think the doors are underrated. I think that kind of something happened where people decided the doors weren't cool or something, but I disagree till this, still to this day. And so I was really into like Jim Morrison and stuff. But then when I was 12, my sister gave me this Motown compilation. And then I was like into wanting to do music again. And that's when I started like teaching myself how to play the songs I was hearing, particularly Stevie Wonder, you know, and I became kind of fascinated with him for a long time. Do you think it was the song craft, the song craft element of it at that point um, that you were recognizing it's not just about playing an instrument well in the classical style, but there's something about the magic of song craft, like a la Motown, kind of bringing that to the fore where it's just like, holy shit, this is what a good song is. Yeah, I think that and also just like his kind of cathartic feet, like when he sings with such a cathartic, like he's just going so fucking balls to the wall, like particularly in his earlier years and stuff. And he was also like, let's say I was like 12. He fit, he made his first album at 12 and I got the 12 year old genius record. And then I kind of followed him kind of went chronologically through his career. And um, I made a real study of it. And I do think something about, I had a very, I don't, you know, without getting too into it, but, you know, I had kind of rough childhood and a rough time getting started in life. And I think his sort of transcendent, he, he's, he's, he's singing like he kind of is somewhere else. You know what I mean, Stevie Wonder. And I think part of that has to do with like being blind and like not focusing on the material world in such a day-to-day -day way as a lot of us. He's kind of thinking about, he's he's very zoomed out in terms of like spiritually and conceptually. And, and he sings that way too. And I think I found a lot of escape in that spiritual sense. I just, I just liked it. I just felt that I wanted to be playing it all the time you know i think i found a lot of comfort in his music because it sounded like he was singing from a place where he had shit figured out and he kind of still sounds like that you know and i think that's why he's kind of re regarded as a head of state is because he 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 sounds like he's got it more figured out than the rest of us kind of you know and he seems to be having a lot of fun in music too so and i think i was in a lot of difficulty in my childhood and I kind of used it to sort of short 
sort of like hotwire my brain to feel good. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you had said earlier that around that age is when you're beginning to also figure out how to use the studio as an instrument in your own kind of teenagery way with whatever you had access to then. When did you start to feel like you could write a good song or that songwriting was something or that you, you know, were beginning to crack the code on or even just having that as a goal? I actually, when I was like 18, because I then I became like really interested in jazz piano and and like got very into being studious about that. Like I said, when I was like 16, 17, 18, but for numerous reasons, one having to do with, I, I, I looked and it didn't seem like you probably would be able to make your way. I wasn't good enough as a jazz piano player to make my way in this world as a jazz piano player. It came obvious to me. I also knew I could sing kind of. And so I was like, well, how do I combine that into something? And, you know, and I also always loved the Beatles and I loved Stevie Wonder. And I'm like, what do those people do, though? They're, they're mainly kind of call them songwriters. So I was like, well, I think if I make songwriting my thing, you know, that then I'll be able to use all these things and I can use the piano playing in a way that I don't need to be as good as like Brad Meldow to be playing. And I, I knew Brad too. So like I knew I wasn't going to be that good, you know, or my buddy Greg Kirsten that I was in the band with, you know, even before he started doing production stuff, you know, like I knew I wasn't as good of a piano player as him, you know, so and for listeners, this is this is in New York. So Andrew's growing up in a in Manhattan, right? So this is like there's definitely like it's a competitive place to try and be like I could do something like jazz, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so so I'm like you know I'm I'm around like Roy Hargrove, Brad Meldow, Walter Blanding Jr., who's who's a great saxophone player, plays with Wynton Marsalis now and stuff. This guy Archie Walker who was in Ornette Coleman's band and Greg Kirsten was in my band. Sort of, I knew that like we, you know, I knew that probably my thing was going to be combining lots of things that I did rather than making the one thing my focus and saying, you know, I'm going to just be a judge. Plus I also felt like there was so much music that I wanted to pull from that if I was committed to just being like a, a bebop jazz piano player or, I wouldn't have been able to use because that those that world has such a strict code to it even to this day. You know, you go down to Smalls and the jazz club in in New York City, and people still like wear the '50s clothes. You know, because they're really committed to that one lane. And I just knew it wasn't really in the cards for me to be that kind of focused on the one thing. I'm too too ADD for that. And for a little while, you did a band thing uh, or a couple of different band things before you started to work in film and and then Mike Snow. What was the kind of early band phase like? So before, I guess it's hard to talk about that without talking about the fact that like I got I kind of got a record deal when I was 19 to be, you know, on on like a major label to to be like a songwriter, producer and then. I was on drugs then and I and then I also suffered this like crazy um psychotic episode where I was like misdiagnosed as being schizophrenic and I had to take off like seven years. So it's a long story. I mean it's a seven year uh, diversion 
and I'm, I'm actually writing about that now. And I was, you know, so I was in a mental institution for a while and I was also diagnosed, turns out fortunately to have been wrong, but I was diagnosed schizophrenic. So I took a long time off from music. And when I came back, the drummer that had been the drummer in my band with Greg Kirsten was now playing with this guy, Jeff Buckley. And I had actually, before I went to the mental hospital, I had played a gig with Jeff in New York City at this place called Fez. You know, so so when I got back from New York, I put a band together with that same drummer. And he, because Jeff had already just died by the time I came back to New York, tragically, he was playing with his old bandmates from Jeff's band. And so we ended up putting a band together out of those crews. It was initially called Black Beetle. And Joan Wasser, who's Jonas Policewoman now, was also was in that band. And I was like the keyboard player and producer. And Michael, who was the guitar player in Jeff's band, was also in Black Beetle but and was also dating Joan. And when they broke up, Joan went off and did Jonas Policewoman. And Michael and I did this band called the AM, which was kind of like glammy, kind of T-Rexy, New York, like rock and roll revival kind of stuff from early 2000s. And we did a couple of albums and we toured in the UK and stuff. And so that kind of got me into, you know, back into music. And at that time, also had run into the guy that signed me to Capitol many years before. And he is the guy that put me in touch with Bloodshy and Avant to do songwriting because there was a kid that he had signed that he wanted to write songs for. And he, he ran into me and he's like, oh yeah, that, Wyatt, he knows how to write songs. Let's put them together. And so we went to Sweden and that was my first trip to Sweden. So, and that's when I met Bloodshine Avant and that ended up becoming Mike Snow in the future. So I just, ha I have to interject for listeners too. This is a wild series of events that Andrew's just described because well, for one thing, I just want to say thank you for sharing with me about your experience during that time. That's that's intense. And yeah. uh, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But then also to be in a band with this like trauma bond thing about Buckley's passing has to have been a very strange reentry um, to your life. And for all those other people who were just having, I'm sure, a very rough time in that interlude, you know. But then this is also the early, as you've said, the early 2000s and it's New York City. And if you're listening to this show, you probably know what that means, which is that suddenly as New Yorkers from a from a previous generation that Andrew and I are, you know, the New York music scene had kind of been boring for a little while. And then you're back. And now New York is a place where interesting music is happening in, in Indian alternative and then Bloodshy and Avant are working with Britney fucking Spears when you meet them. So they're about to really have their level up. So, I mean, did it feel to you when you like, can you remember at the time feeling like, wait, suddenly a lot is happening for me. Like I went away for a while, I'm back. And there's a lot of energy right now and a lot of opportunity. Yes and no, because in some ways I still felt like a hot mess because I was like, I kind of had a record deal when I was in my early 20s and I, I was kind of the guy calling all the shots and, you know, I had a, it's like a million dollar record deal or something. And 
I came back to New York and I'm like in all these different situations and, and, and they're all with really talented people and good people. But I, but I still felt a little bit like um, tossed about by it all, you know? And I think I kind of had expected that my career would have a certain kind of purity to it. Right. And now it turned, turned out to be okay because sometimes the times will use you to be part of some bigger narrative that you don't, wouldn't even really make sense to you at the time. I mean, you see this constantly, like who really knows that when they do their little thing, you know, like how would, let's say Justin Bon Iver know that when he's making this one guitar song in his cabin in Milwaukee, that it's going to be this thing that has huge ramifications in culture, right? How did I know? And would I even honestly said yes to doing, you know, these things internally with like, let's say blood shine Avant because, because I was like, I don't know. It's nothing else was really going that well. Fucking sure. Let's, let's do this, you know, and let's, I respected their music. You know I mean? I respected their chops, let's say, you know, like, and, and I respected that they were, they had originality. Did I know that it was going to be a very important, like, and I should mention also still in many parts of the world, not acknowledged like flashpoint for where indie music and pop music became the same thing. Definitely. And it was, you know, it, it was the fur it was probably the first one if I'm gonna get really ballsy here. But yeah, fuck you, Foster the People. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no shade at Foster the People, but we were also like two years prior to them, you know. And I mean, honestly, Mike Snow never had a huge pop top forty hit, but I think like the way the Foster the People did. But I think it was in some ways because it was too soon, you know, and if maybe the song Animal had come out five years later, it probably would have been. I, you know, those are that's all hypothetical. All my point is is that you just didn't know. I did it because fuck these guys are talented. I respect working with talented people, and and I also did sort of say to myself, the the internet's kind of pulling all all impulses closer together, and like herding everything closer together, so in some weird way it made sense to go over there and start writing songs with them even though i was coming from and saw myself as part of a scene that was completely different from like britney spears you know and i guess that also speaks to the power of human interaction and um the content of people's character and personality because whatever the music that someone makes is one thing, but the people that I met who were behind that, I really connected to. Yeah. And you have, I mean, now you have so many experiences with so many different collaborators or collab, you know, that you, it's like, oh yeah, no chemistry. It's not with everyone. Even if you're only working with people with a high skill level, it's still not always going to turn out to be a good, a good creation because something was missing in the, in the chemistry or whatever. And so, I'm imagining that back in those early sessions with for Mike Snow with Blood China Avant that you were like, okay, this, 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 I don't know what this is, but these are good songs. 
we all can agree these songs feel good. Yeah, exactly. And boy, you're really, you know, saying what I kind of am meanderingly <laughs> saying, you're saying in a very terse way. This is this is like the daily when you hear on like the, the New York Times, the daily or like my, Michael Barbaro is like, so what you're saying is that even though you're 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 helping lay this out thank you it's great because you know in some ways i'm still a hot mess yeah <laughs> um so <laughs> when did you start to feel that uh that you were a good songwriter that you were that it was something that kind of came more naturally to you maybe than you had realized or than it might to some other people i think like when i first started doing and finishing songs like the summer, the summer that I decided I, I should be a songwriter, I started really using the four track and making songs. And and I had a few moments where I was like, holy shit, this is way better than I thought. Or I was kind of shocked, you know, and, and I think that's when I knew um, there was something not necessarily having to do with me that was involved with it you know and i've i've felt like there's always been that in my life you know that's been the one thing that i think has been true is that i don't except for that one moment when i had sort of like given up music for seven years and i, and I was starting to come back to music I had a moment where I was like, maybe I can't do this. Maybe that was all like bravado and like a continuum of like tiny successes combined with my initial like, like hubris that allowed me to even get as far as I got the first time around. When I was coming back from like completely being away from music for seven years and I came back to New York, I had a moment where I was really frightened that, Maybe I was just kidding myself the whole time, you know? But then I think that's when I started collaborating with people and realizing that like, oh, I did have something to offer. And I don't think it's actually ever gotten in the way since then, you know? I've always felt that for some reason that confidence has been there since then. Well, there's a song for listeners on Andrew's uh, new solo album. And it's actually, I think, um, pretty funny that it's the last song on the album, or at least in the version that I'm listening to that is titled in the current version, Another Great Song, <laughs> which is one of my favorite songs on the album and is genuinely <laughs> where you're just like, oh, this song, this is fucking catchy as hell. This song is great. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so yeah, that's part of like why I'm asking about like you, ha I mean, you have to on, it's like no one in our society, we don't want to be like, yeah, I am good at that. You know what I mean? But like unequivocally, like, you know, demonstrably, you look at you make a list of songs that you've written and it's like, yeah, this is some of the catchier shit of of these times. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. I assume so you you there's nothing wrong with saying like, yeah, I don't know. Somehow I can write a good song. But like, you know, an, another great song to me is like a little bit of the wave where you're like, I don't know, I guess I some this is I'll put it last. <laughs> I, that could be the last. one. Uh, yeah, I mean. I guess guilty is charged. I don't know. That's what <laughs> Phil Lesh said to me when I asked him, are you Phil Lesh? <laughs> I just use that now. Um, I didn't realize that your work in, in um, 
music for movies went back as long as it did until I was prepping for for this conversation, um, because I know you started working on on film soundtracks and stuff right back around when you started working with Bloodshy and Avant, right? Yeah, exactly. Like when I got back to New York and actually after the AM, which was the band that I that I did where I was telling about with, with the Jeff Buckley's, you know, cohorts and stuff. Once that sort of started to real, when I realized that that was, you know, probably I was going to be having to leave that situation. That's when I was just open for business, you know, because I here I'm in like close to my mid thirties and I'm like truly broke, like getting kicked out of my apartment kind of broke, you know? And that's when I was just like, I'm open for business. And that's where I was just like, if somebody was like, write a song for this movie about, you know, robots. And I would just be like, all right. And I would show up to the guys. I remember I went out to Hollywood and I went to the guy's office, who was like the head of music is for Fox. His name was Robert Kraft. And I was like playing him the song. He's like, can it go higher there? And I'm like, it's like making it. And I'm like literally playing it. And he's like, here's where it needs to go higher. And I was like, it was literally like a movie. It was like a movie about Tin Pan Alley from like 1941, where I was like James Cagney, like, hey, how about this, you know? And I, but I was literally like so broke that I was like willing to do anything, you know. And then I I ended up doing this movie, music and lyrics, right? Which is what you're probably talking about. Indeed. And that one. Yeah, and that one was just like kind of perfect for you in a in a way. Yeah, and if it's like a comedy, I can get behind that. And I my my favorite thing to do with the comedy is like write it so that you don't know for sure if it's a joke song. I think that's when people do send ups, I think it's too sometimes they go too far in the direction of like not potentially being able to take it seriously because to me the funniest thing is when you are like are they serious? Like, and the fact that you're taking it seriously, but it's totally crazy is the thing that I find funniest, you know? And I think that I'm just Ken song has a lot of that too, where it's like, you're kind of like spoofing the, the seriousness of the emotion, but you're also have to kind of feel that emotion to be able to spoof it. So you're, it's kind of like tearing you in two different directions, but I I do find that to be uh, admirable work. I don't know. I wonder, like, when somebody brings you into a project now, whether it's to collaborate with another artist as a songwriter and producer, or for a for a film score, a film soundtrack, like, what do you think is the special sauce that they're like? Let's get Wyatt in on this. This is what we need some some of the Wyatt juice. Like, what 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 do you think that is? Wow, that's a that's a self and that's like when your boss is like if if you have five strengths and five weaknesses it's like a, a, a that self-evaluation is definitely not my strong suit but i will say i don't know what would the wyatt sauce be i think it's always melodies you know i mean i think i think the melodies are are probably because i've been working from a place of like trying to teach myself how to do melodies since i was like before even I was 10 years old, I think there's something that feels, if if I have to self-evaluate, I would probably say the, the melodies 
don't feel contrived. And I, and I think it's because they're coming from a very deep part of me that, that the melodies have always been kicking around in there since I was like, since I had very developed linguistic skills, since I had any exact, you know, executive function, you know, before I was like thinking strategically, you know what I mean? I think when you, when you start thinking of how to do things as a strategic adult, there's just something about that. That's a buzzkill. And you hear that a lot in pop music where, I mean, that's why you definitely don't want it. Why no one goes to the gym without their own headphones because the music that they play in the gym is all just pure calculation by fully aware adults. And there's no mystery in what they're doing at all because it's like, how do I write this melody so that I can achieve the p highest possible, you know, you know, endorphin rush at measure 42, you know? And it's like when that's, being done and also when it's not even being acknowledged by the person who's doing it there's some people like let's say you know stockhausen is actually sitting there and being like okay scientifically it makes the most sense for this melody but that's he's doing that even in a self-aware when unself-aware people are doing music that is calculated and they're not even aware of the fact that they're doing it because they're being calculated. It's just a whole nauseating business. And so I think why people come to me is because I do write the melodies, but I don't, it comes so naturally to me that there's no layer on it that feels contrived. And what's, what's your writing process sort of like, like currently or generally like is, how much is it self and it, does it just sort of rise up and you're like, something's happening. I need to sit with an instrument. I need to get this down versus just clocking in and being like, it's time to write. Well, I mean, at some point when you're doing these like things that have heavy deadlines, like Barbie or something, you got to sit there and make sure you get the stuff done. But that's the whole part where I think grace comes in because I don't, I want this to be, I don't want this to be, coming on my schedule it's not about my schedule it's got to be about serving something more fluid than that but i do know it actually has to get done by this time so how do you reconcile those two things right so it's only grace that could do that so honestly the best moments in barbie were where i just wasn't thinking that just you were given these moments of grace where you just you just step up to the instrument and it just comes out, you know, and it's, it has to do something with grace because, you know, uh, of those two uh, forces that you can't really, they're so, you can't really reconcile those forces in and of your own human capacity. Something else has to be at play, I think, you know. Oh, yeah, because that other dimension, that other clearing way for that other dimension for it to come in, sort of like everything else has to kind of quiet down. But then when you when you are actually working, um, yeah, what does it look like? Do you sort of yeah? Do you, where do you go and uh, what do you find is the kind of environment that makes you most creative? Um, riding a bike is very helpful. Biking biking is like because you feel so free when you're on a bike. The, you might be navigating certain obstacles, especially in New York City, but it's a different part of your brain and that other 
it's almost nice to have some distraction if you're if you're slightly distracted the way you you are when you're in crowds of people it, it almost like creates a drug that lets you check it's it's it, 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 i'm trying to describe it um you you have this um i have this feeling when i'm in the bustle that i maybe don't matter so much you know you're just part of a mechanism and that lets you kind of relax a little or lets me relax a lot until i feel almost just like i am an element in the context of a, a bigger scene or you know one element in a scene and so the ego's kind of re reduced there and then you can actually let the other impulses that are just there latent all the time emerge and i think that's also why people also have luck good luck with the fishing for songs when they're either meditating or coming in or out of a meditation or where the moments right before people fall asleep a lot of times people report that they get good inspiration there i know some people who've told me that they go to church not because they're religious but because when they're in the sermon they're actually impulse like lets them check out in the same way as that you know not paying attention in class when you're in school you feel like a little bit of a delinquent and that delinquency is exciting and it feels transgressive and you're able to go think about things that are not you're not supposed to be thinking about and therefore it feels more private and maybe more it's exclusive to just you i don't know so it feels like a treat it feels like feels like cheating a little bit like getting a a donut out of the you know cupboard at like midnight or something you know and that's sometimes a nice feeling to fuel the process but then you know i mean that's the inspiration part and then there's the craft after you have like the initial blast a lot of work and i didn't really understand ever what that whole 10% inspiration 90% perspiration thing was even getting at it basically you can't do anything until you have that 10% of inspiration it doesn't it's not saying just bust your ass for no reason and i think it, that ratio is actually quite accurate is there the feeling you have during that 10% time if you're out in the hustle and bustle on a bike ride or whatever and you start to feel like ooh i'm i'm in there now and something's coming like does it does it remind you of any like is it a feeling you know immediately when it's happening is there a physical sensation um you know you reference sort of like oh like a drug or something but do you can mm -hmm. you identify that feeling right away when it's happening in a kind of nervous system way mm, yeah i mean it feels it just it's a good feeling it feels good it just feels it feels satisfying you know it's like a a satisfying daydream you know it's almost like fantasizing about sex or something you know it just because it's got a you know melodies have curves to them and rhythms have a feeling to them and you know and and so it's it's similar in that way it, it, and it feel it just feels good it's it's like a delightful and that that's why i say you can't really you can't really do the other 90% unless you know you're 
you're you're trying to make other people feel that thing that you felt. That's really what the work's all about, right? Is that how can I make you feel that too? Because I felt it and it felt really good to me. So it's interesting. I, things I've never really thought about before. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> I love to hear that. That's that's <laughs> that's what the podcast is all about. That's what podcasting is all about, just right. Filene's Basement, Deep Thoughts. Yeah. I think it's funny, though, you referenced riding the bicycle because I was going to mention this, and I feel like it's a it's a good sort of a, a serendipity thing to make you aware of, is that when I first got here to to our friend's place where I'm staying in, in Andrew's neighborhood of L.A., coincidentally, like a few weeks ago, I was getting in my car. It was the first day I was here. I saw someone riding a bicycle up the hill, dressed very well. It was an adult male, and I thought, is that Andrew Wyatt, who I know lives in the vicinity, riding a bicycle well-dressed up this hill on a fucking hot day? And it was. It was you. I got in my car, and as you rode past, it was you. Of course, I wasn't going to get out and flag you. That's so wild. But I thought, what is he doing? Because this is a steep hill. It's fucking hot. He's not wearing workout clothes. What were you doing? What were you just... Is that how you get oh around, God. or was that like an inspiration moment? I think I... No <laughs> no, I think um, I think I was actually taking my bike to get the tire fixed. So I pumped the bike's tire up, and it was like it was it was enough to ride it, just for like the ride down to the bike shop. Yeah, but I do you I I love riding my bike in L.A. It's great. It's it's obviously it's good exercise and. During the pandemic, I mean, we would ride all the way almost down to Long Beach. Damn. We would we would ride. Yeah. So we used to do that during the pandemic because there was nothing else to do except make sad heartbreak albums. You know? Thanks so much for, for connecting to do this, Andrew. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad we did. That brings us to the end of episode 94. Thanks again for listening and... Of course, thanks again to Andrew Wyatt for that interview and Nick Zinner. Thanks again for letting me use your basement. And I'm at Jenny LSQ on social platforms. If you want to reach me in any of those places, you can find other episodes of the series at JennyLSQ.com. And I'm looking forward to upcoming episodes with Kazu from Blonde Redhead and Molly from Always and Jason Isbell. So subscribe if the platform you listen on offers that option. And I'll talk to you next time.